Jokey. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please. <coughs> and we'll open in prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, thank you for laying this upon my heart. I pray that you would, as you have helped me to prepare it, I pray that you would now help me to present it, Lord, as ask that the uh, word would uh, be clear, it would be truthful, uh, how I present it, and uh, may we be ready for a challenge and a blessing today, and touch our hearts and lives today, in your name, um, Now, <coughs> a few months ago, uh, a friend of mine's cousin, the cousin being known to me, he was at the gym, as was common for him to do several times a week, a big strong lad, lifting heavy things, wasn't uncommon for him to once he finished his workout be sore afterwards. But on this particular day, the chest pains were a bit different. He thought about going home and sleeping it off. They persisted. He changed his mind and on a bit of a hunch went to the hospital just as well that he did because as he was there in hospital, he suffered the second of two heart attacks. Um, only in his early 20s, it was completely unexpected. And it was a good thing he was at the hospital when it happened, or he may not be here today. It was touch and go for a while. And of course, it was very scary, especially because it was unexpected. There were no warning signs. Now, high blood pressure was undoubtedly a factor in this big, strong uh, lad's health. Now, there's a medical condition called hypertension. <coughs> Most likely you've heard of it. And it relates to abnormally high blood pressure. In fact, in the medical world, it's known as the silent killer. It's known as this because there are no symptoms visible until it's often too late. Uh, in the USA, more people die from hypertension per year than the next three diseases combined. Now, while that's an American statistic, Australia, as we know, is not too far behind. And even if it doesn't kill you, uh, you can be left with damage, heart, um, poor heart, um, Usage, you know, kidney failure, eyesight, all these things can be affected. Now, spiritually, another silent killer lurks in our churches and in individuals' hearts and lives today. And Paul was acutely aware of this going on in his congregation at Corinth, and he laboured intently to show them the danger of a silent killer within their lives, even though they, by all accounts, thought that they were fine. As their doctor, Paul knew otherwise. Now, this is probably message number six or seven uh, in our First Corinthians series. Right now, if you remember back, chapters one to four, we studied in depth the disunity of these carnal Christians, their fleshly living, their foolish priorities. We've now skipped over chapters five to nine, but in summary, each of these chapters deals with one or two specific sins that they were struggling with, whether they be fornication, lawsuits and bickering amongst one another, marriage trivialization, abuse of their Christian liberty, or the attacking of Paul's person and his ministry, which if we were to go through each of those, it would make for a long couple of weeks and we'd all leave a bit depressed. So I've decided to give you an overview and we now come to chapter 10, which is crunch time. This was, chapters 5 to 9 were a symptoms list, and Paul now comes to his official 
diagnosis or his doctor's report, for want of a better term. I've titled today's message, The Silent Killer. Today we're going to look at the silent killer in Christians' lives and how to overcome it. The silent killer in Christians' lives and how to overcome it. Now, as a doctor, going with that analogy, Paul gives a case study using 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. He starts off with point number one, demonstrating the prime position of those he's talking to, the prime position of the Corinthians to be healthy, verses 1 to 4. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock and followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, if you remember five-star points, I'm not expecting you to remember, but I pointed out in the past that every time Paul says something like, I would not have you to be ignorant or something like that, this is Paul's way of saying, guys, I'm about to drop some hard truth, you better listen. He's saying to them, you need to remember how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, in those first four verses, he's talking about, of course, the exodus from Egypt. How the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, they were delivered from Egypt and spent the next 40 years trying to figure out how to get to the promised land and be happy when they got there. Now, he says, all our fathers. Now, straight away, that should make your ears prick up a little bit because the Corinthians were not Jews. They were Gentiles. So why is he talking about the Jews being our fathers? I wrestled with that a little bit. Now, there are two possibilities. He's either talking about how the example of the Jews who followed Moses in belief, therefore modelling Christians, how they're the fathers of Christianity, that's a possibility. Or perhaps all our fathers being Jew and Gentile alike, for something that's often overlooked and not talked about much, is that there were Egyptians. There was a mixed multitude that did leave Egypt with the um, Israelites. Exodus and Numbers both mentioned a mixed multitude who followed the congregation because they decided that Jehovah was a God worth following. So if we follow either of these possibilities, we're looking at both Jews and Gentiles being our fathers of the Christian faith. All our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Here talking about, of course, the cloud that the Lord led um, the Israelites by and how he helped them through the Red Sea. Here we have an analogy of the saved. Why? Because they were saved from Egypt through the deliverance of the cloud and the Red Sea. The Israelites were saved out of their problem in Egypt. The Corinthians were saved out of their uh, destiny uh, in hell. And as we, if we are children of God, we are also saved. We're in a prime position to do the right thing. Not only were they saved, but they were all sanctified, verse 2, and were all baptised unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Of course, this is not talking about literal baptism as we saw last week. Even if you go with the whole, the Red Sea is a picture of baptism. They didn't actually get immersed, the water parted, they walked through on dry ground. So that's not talking about that type of baptism. This type of baptism being the whole, as we identify with Christ in baptism, these Jews were identifying with Moses. They they threw all their, um, they cashed in all their chips, they threw all their cards on the table and said, we're going, 
with Moses. They were sanctified or set apart to Moses and were all set, uh, baptized unto Moses, sorry, in the cloud and in the sea. They were saved and they were sanctified. They identified with Moses, with him as their leader who they would follow. And not only this, but they were sustained during their travel. Verse 3, and they did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So, of course, the meat being the manna that he gave and then the water of the rock. You know, anytime they needed food or drink, the Lord provided it. But there's a deeper meaning there that he says, plain and simple, that rock was Christ. Pre-incarnate Jesus was there leading them along and sustaining them. So the Israelites and the mixed multitude that flowed along, lumping them in with the same blessing, they were saved, they were sanctified, and they were sustained. They had all of these things. They were in a prime position to do the right thing and to remain healthy, as we do as the church of God and as the Corinthians did. However, verse 5 leads us to poor practice. Read with me, verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Even though they were in a prime position to do the right thing, poor practice brought them undone. Because as we know, many of God was not well pleased with. And if you know the story, Joshua and Caleb were the only fellows over 20 years old who made it into the promised land. Not even Moses and Aaron were permitted to enter. Why? Because along the way, they lost focus, they participated in things they shouldn't have, and they ceased to be useful to the Lord. It says, not, um, many of them, God was not well pleased, they were overthrown in the wilderness. The word overthrown literally means to strew or spread over. The bodies littered the ground. It would have been easy to figure out where they had been and where they were going, or you would have to do follow the trail of bodies and shallow graves. It would have been a depressing time to uh, exist through. Now, this is not, if, if you think about it, this is not just unbelieving Jews that the Lord punished. Why? Because Moses and Aaron were casualties as well. There were many godly Jews and perhaps Gentiles who truly believed in Jehovah, yet somewhere along the line they ceased to become useful to the Lord and they were left behind. They couldn't be used of the Lord and he didn't want anything to do with them on earth anymore. Second Timothy 21 says, If a man therefore purge himself, he shall be a vessel unto honour, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. This is what the Lord desires for us. But for many of these um, congregation in the wilderness, they weren't prepared to do that and they got left behind. They ceased to be useful and they greatly missed out. And it's a, it's a real shame that out of many, many thousands that left Egypt, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones over 20 who actually lived to see it. And that's a real shame. Because, as we said, they were in a prime position. They had all the resources to do the right thing and get there in no time. But because of poor practice, they messed up. They had all the resources, but poor life choices led to death. And that's how it is today. We go with the whole medical analogy. Here in the Western world, we have access to great med um, medicine, scientific discoveries. We really should be living a lot longer than the rest of the world. And in some 
instances we are, but we're still probably not living as long as we could because of our poor choices that we make in what we eat, what, um, protect our bodies and things like that. The Corinthians and us, the church today, have had, been given all the resources in order to be on track and do as the Lord would have us to do. And the Corinthians were falling short. And I know for a fact that the church in Australia today, as a general rule, is falling short as well through poor, uh, poor practice. But it's not just a generalization. Specifics are now given from verses 6 to 10. Paul gives us these perilous pitfalls, these symptoms of the root problem. We'll read from verse 6. Now, these things were our examples. The intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. We've got to learn history. This is what Paul's saying. You know, badness, the definition of insanity, someone once said, is doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and expecting different results. And this is what is happening here. We look back at the examples of the Old Testament and Christianity in history, and yet we still continue to do the same thing. And we're going to have the same results. We're going to fall by the wayside. We need to learn from history because Israel's lust brought them down to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Lust brought them down. And as uh, Westerners, we're not known for practicing restraint. We want things and we want them now. In this day and age, the worst part about ordering online is having to wait for it to arrive. The Olympics have started. I love the Olympics. Imagine my disgust when I turned on the TV to watch the Olympics and Abby wasn't carrying Channel 7 for some reason. Now, that's since been rectified, so you don't need to pray for me or anything. But I, you know, I had this feeling of injustice. I deserve to watch the Olympics. I don't need to watch the Olympics. You know, people back in the day, they couldn't just watch it just like that. But in our society today, we have come to expect things now and we're not known for practicing restraint or really necessarily controlling ourselves uh, with our evil lusts. Of course, this is an example. Watching the Olympics in itself is not inherently evil. Now, Paul knew that this is what the Corinthians were capable of. He knew he'd seen it. He'd spent nine chapters trying to point this out to them, but they still didn't get it. He knew that they were vulnerable. He starts giving four specific examples of perilous pitfalls. Verse 7, idolatry. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and to play. This, of course, is referring to the time when Moses was up receiving the Ten Commandments. The people missed him. They panicked and decided to worship a golden calf. They spat in God's face because they had just come from Egypt. They had seen the mighty works that God did to deliver them. It's fresh in their minds. It's not long after, and still the best thing that they can come up with is instead of trusting the Lord, and it's clearly something's happening up there because there's the glory and the thunder and the lightning, but you know what? A golden calf sounds like a good choice here. Let's decide to worship that instead. They forsook um, God and followed after something more appealing. Now, Corinthian culture shows through here because they were carnal, as we know. Now, I think it's interesting that Paul chooses not to focus on the worship of the golden calf. So he doesn't even mention it. 
but that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, none of those things are idolatrous in themselves. And I feel perhaps that he's targeting the Corinthians because they've been saved. Perhaps they're not worshipping idols anymore, but they're still frequenting those festivals, those pagan festivals, because that's just the way of life that they're used to. Eating, drinking, playing, whatever the context, he's focusing on these things, saying, guys, you shouldn't be, you're worshipping these things more than the Creator. You've lost your focus, and the Lord, please, it's a form of idolatry. And today in our society, you'll be hard-pressed to find someone who literally bows down before an idol to pray. But our idolatry comes in all shapes and sizes, of course. The eating, the drinking, the rising up to play, the lifestyle that we live so often overtakes the true spirituality of what we should be doing and how we should be serving and worshipping the Lord. We want things and we want them now and luxuries and convenience and entertainment. These are the things that we start to live for. And if we're starting to live for these things and enjoy enjoy these things more than our relationship with the Lord, then there's a problem. And we are the same today, whether we want to admit it or not. Idolatry was a problem. Immorality was also a problem. Verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed. And one day, three and twenty thousand. This is referring to an event over 30 years later. They haven't learnt. The next generation coming up hasn't learnt. This is referring to an an event in Numbers 25, which we will not read, um, but which was was touched on by Pastor Kendall a week or so ago, where they entered, um, they were in the land, um, or they were trying to conquer the land, Uh, they were trying to conquer the Moabites, and the Moabites, they corrupted the Israelites by sending their women in among them. And there were mixed marriages, and basically, maybe the idolatry wasn't there so much, but they started to worship Baal through sex. They, they sent through their, um, their Baal-worshipping priestesses, and the Israelite uh, men fell for it hook, line, and sinker. And a plague was sent. 23,000 in one day were killed by this plague. Numbers mentions 24,000 were killed, However, that includes those who were executed by the sword for their gross immorality. So, therefore, we don't necessarily need to see that there's a discrepancy there. Now, in Corinth, this was rife. As we know, as we've talked about, the um, the worshipping in the temple, they had, they serviced a thousand uh, priestess prostitutes. And they they worked all day, and then they worked a bit of overtime in the night where they came down to the street and did a little bit of moonlight or freelancing. This was rife in the city of Corinth. And if you've grown up like that, once you get saved, there's no magical switch that turns off desires. I'm sure it would have been very hard for some of these Corinthian believers to let go of that completely. Maybe they thought they were okay because they weren't worshipping these false gods, but it would have been hard to give up the walking past the temple and popping in for a quick visit. This would have been difficult to do. Now, perhaps we think, well, thank we don't have that problem nowadays. We're all relatively true to our spouses, very true to our spouses. But there's another problem with immorality. And of course, I'm talking about pornography. And of course, that's rife. And if you're kidding yourself, if you don't think that it's an issue. Some recent statistics say that 50%, over 50% of Christian men 
admit to being addicted to porn and 20% and rising of Christian women admit to being addicted to porn. Now, these are people who are admitting to being addicted. These are not talking about the ones who have a passing look every so often. And these are the ones who are being honest, the ones who are actually brave enough to put on a survey, I have a problem. How many others are slipping through the cracks because they're not willing to admit they've got a problem? If you think that this is not a problem in every church in Australia, then we're blind because going on those statistics, which are two years old, they can only be growing based on the accessibility today and the sexualization of our nation. That means that there are people here in this church struggling with this problem, if that's the case. Is it the person sitting next to you? Is it you? And if it's you and you've got a problem, seek help, get help. Don't pretend like nothing's wrong. Because this immorality was rife in Corinth and it's rife in our churches today. And it's a silent killer because no one sees it happening. So we've got idolatry, we've got immorality. And then verse 9, we talk about incitement. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Incite, meaning to, to, um, to rile up. Now I'm talking about those who are tempting Christ. This word tempt here means to thoroughly put to the test. Now, when I prepared this message a little while ago, I had the vision of a child in the classroom just nagging at the teacher. But I got a perfect example just last Friday where the student put their feet on the table and I said, don't put your feet on the table. So they took their feet off the table, as in they lifted their feet up in the air, but they kept their legs resting on the table. And they look at me like, my feet aren't on the table, what are you going to do? Thoroughly putting me to the test. And this is what the Israelites do to the Lord, what the Corinthians were doing to the Lord, and this is what perhaps we are doing now where they were rising up against God. This is referring to a time where they were destroyed by serpents, referring to the Israelites getting sick and tired of Moses and Aaron's leadership, complaining that the Lord didn't know what he was doing. Basically, think, God, come on, God, what are you going to do? We don't trust you anymore. So God said, all right, and he sent fiery serpents. And many, many people died for their foolishness. Do we do this as Corinth did? They were immature. We know this. Do we wear out God's grace through our bickering, through our lack of trust in the Lord, through our pettiness? Are we so focused on the little itty-gritty things that don't matter and are we just frustrating the Lord because our attitudes and our heart are not where they should be? Our focus is not right. And God clearly takes this seriously. Perhaps we don't think it's as serious as idolatry or immorality, but it's in the same list. And fiery serpents biting and killing people, that's pretty serious. And then finally, verse 10, impudence. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. This, um, this impudence, this saying, this being disrespectful again to the Lord. Unbelief, denial of the goodness of mercy of God. In this context, uh, destroyed of the destroyer refers to a time where they were blaming Moses and Aaron for all of their faults. And the angel of the Lord was sent in a plague and many people were destroyed that uh, time uh, a passage in number 16. Corinth did the same thing they picked sides they were at war we that in great depth I love Paul I love Apollos I love myself we love Jesus the rest of you are wrong 
It was just, it was ripe, and they were just constantly at each other. And in our churches today, where we expect convenience and luxury, and people to look at us and value our opinions, some people are never happy. We see it in churches everywhere. It doesn't matter what the people in charge decide to do, someone's not going to be happy about it. And this is just minor things, things that aren't important. And it wears God down so much that he's willing to send a plague to fix it. All of these are not the root problem. These are all symptoms of the silent killer. And they're all around today. They were in Corinth and they're here to now churches. But we now see Paul's purpose in verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. He reminds us why he's telling us all these depressing facts and figures and case studies. They're written for our admonition, they're in samples. Plain and simple, they're examples for our instruction. He's saying, remember back to what happened here, don't let it happen to you. And they're written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Who's he talking to there? He's talking to those in the church age, because... As far as uh, Paul was concerned, nothing else was going to happen after uh, Christ's resurrection and ascension until the rapture. Not knowing when that would be, we're still waiting. You know, we're in the, the time, the end times. The ends of the world are coming and these, these instructions and admonitions are for our benefit. Because as the Israelites did, as the Corinthians did, and as perhaps we do today, we can forfeit blessing reward and effectiveness through demonstrating these symptoms of a greater problem and this is why this is paul's purpose in presenting this he's reminding them and he's reminding us because it's relevant today don't go down this path now perhaps you don't really identify with what uh, this passage says maybe you're feeling oh yep this passage is important in raising awareness. Raising awareness is good for a problem that some people have, but it's not present in my life. I really have got it all together, praise the Lord. I'm doing okay. Paul brings a chilling warning in verse 12.5. He brings a personal premonition. You don't think this uh, affects you, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Take heed means look to it or beware. Here's what the silent killer is. It's pride. This is the root of all of these symptoms. An attitude of, it can't happen to me. Remember Peter, Lord, I'll follow you forever. And he denied the Lord three times that night. He was given three opportunities to identify with the Lord and he blew it. Proverbs 16, 18 says for us, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall we know it we say it we say it like a proverb because that's exactly what it is we're perhaps not really aware of how much of a danger it actually is pride is at the root of all sin what was lucifer the origin of sin what was his sin pride and that's the ma how everything is manifested today and it's it's a belief that we know better than god we can choose to do what we want we choose to believe a lie that that thing over there, even though it's not God has said that's not okay, I don't believe God, I know better than God. 
and I can partake in whatever that sin is. That's pride. And it's so subtle and it did my head in just thinking about all the ways that pride can manifest itself. Even if we don't have these specific sins in our life, like idolatry, like immorality, like incitement, impudence, we're really doing okay, then we can get proud about that. We start saying, I'm really doing okay here. Oh, praise the Lord. I'm a good Christian. Bang, wrong. That's pride. Look out. Or you've started to, you're starting to follow the Lord well, and so you start to relax a little bit in what you're being careful about. And before you don't, boom, you're right where you don't want to be. Or we grow proud of our own achievements, as I've said. And we're all tempted to sin. That's the problem. Whether it's specific sin or being tempted to be proud about the fact that there's no sin in our life. So it's everywhere. But there is a pertinent promise. Our last point, verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now, it's not a sin to be tempted. Sometimes we think that it is. But Jesus was tempted, we know this. His temptation in the wilderness, what was the result of that? It strengthened him. It proved that he was who he said he was, because he stands without sin the temptations of the devil. Now, the temptation to sin comes thick and fast from everything, through the world, through the flesh, through the devil himself. But the good news is that we all receive it. You know, not much good news, but it's still nice to know that someone else is going through what you're going through. It says, temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. That means that you're not unique in this area. No one knows what I'm going through. Yes, they do. Someone is suffering the same way that you're suffering. You may have really weird things that you get tempted about and you may feel embarrassed about those things, that your pitfalls guaranteed someone else has those same. It's not unique to you and you can escape it. Why? Because God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. Yes, we get tempted. The Lord allows temptation in our lives, but God knew how much Job could take. And the devil pushed and pushed and pushed and tried to get Job to break and he didn't. Why? For the Lord only allowed Job to take what he was able to handle. No one can force us to sin. We always have a choice. Our pride is what allows us to sin. This verse says, uh, but God is faithful, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, I always thought that that verse was talking about a way of escape, meaning that no one's ever going to hold you and pry your eyes open and force you to look at something that you shouldn't. Because there's always an op- option to close your eyes or leave the room. That's not exactly what it's saying. Yes, there's always a way of escape in that there's an option to not participate. You can leave. You can choose to not go, not open your mouth, not open your eyes, whatever. There is that, but the greater meaning is that this way of escape is what it's the word of God itself and the promises of God. Why do we know that? Because Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is the template of how we're to resist temptation. You remember back to the account of Jesus in the wilderness, it wasn't him running from Satan for 40 days. Every time Satan appeared, he didn't take off running. Why? He stood there and he went through the temptation. He didn't bypass it. Satan came at him with something and he used the word of God. He used the promises of the Lord his knowledge of what God had for him to refute 
uh, the devil's temp- um, temptations. Jesus is the template of how we're to forego temptation. This is the cure to the silent mind, which is pride. To know the Bible, to know what it says, and to know how to resist the lies of the devil and the calling of the world. This is the cure to the silent killer where outward signs are not there, but inwardly we're a mess. People with hypertension, they look fine until they drop dead. As Christians, some people, we all think that got them, we've got it all together. And then we turn, it turns out that there's something going on. Going back to the um, problem with pornography, a couple of years ago, I had a uh, cabin of count, um, kids, uh, teenagers I was counselling. And out of the five or six boys, the one I least expected to have a problem with this came to me and revealed the extent of his addiction. And it was scary. And that's the one who was honest. All the others could have been affected as well. But what I'm saying is that just because we appear to have it together, you don't know what's going on in someone's life, what they're struggling with. And that is what stops us from seeking help or going to the Bible looking for help. Are we so arrogant to think that we can do it on our own? Do we have pride in our own spirituality, the fact that we don't need anyone? Do we have pride in our own humbleness? As you can see, it's everywhere. But we can bear our temptations because that's how, what we've been designed to do. James 1, 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. This is how we grow stronger, is that resist the temptation that's given to us. People build up immunity to chicken pox by having chicken pox. You know, the vaccines that we get, the antibiotics, sometimes that contains a little bit of that disease, so you can fight it. The answer is not to always be running away. That's a viable option. But the answer is to resist the temptations, to know what the Bible says, to use God's words against that, the words of the devil. So to conclude, today we've looked at the silent killer we saw how the Israelites and the Corinthians and us were in a prime position, saved, sanctified, sustained. But because of poor practice, they still found a way to be not useful. Paul identified some perilous pitfalls such as idolatry, immorality, impudence, incitement. These are everywhere in us today and they were everywhere in Corinth. Paul's purpose for all of this was to learn from the past. And if we think that none of these are an issue for us, there's the personal premonition, the chilling warning, watch out, because pride is this silent killer. This is the root of all the problems. But there's a pertinent promise, there's hope, that we can bear it. God is with us and we must cling to his word. And if you're struggling with any of these symptoms, being pride, the root problem, if you're struggling... Don't do it in silence. Why? Because that's pride in itself, thinking I can do it on my own. My friend went to the hospital because he had pain. He knew something was not right. And we're glad he did because he would be dead otherwise. Don't let the silent killer claim you as a victim. Seek help if you need it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example um, of the Israelites, Lord, the example of the Corinthians, Lord, those you were very patient with, those that you gave your grace to, but who constantly um, 
gave in to their pride and chose to sin. Lord, help us to, to remove all pride in our lives. Lord, help us to be aware of it. Help us to know what to look out for. If there are people here today who are struggling with any of these sins, being pride at the root of all the problems, help them to deal with it, Lord. May this be a, a challenge to those and a blessing to those who are walking with you and you uh, to deliver them from their temptations, Lord. Just pray that you would bless us as a church and as individuals. Amen.